0: Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. What a joy to be with you to uh, worship our great king. It's a it's a joy and a, um, a blessing for me to be here. And I, this church has a very special place in my heart and my wife Kathy's heart. Um, Kathy has been here before with me in one of my visits. And uh, she regrets she wasn't able to come this time. But it's a, it's a joy to be with you. I'm so very grateful for... Um, them. So very grateful for all of our faithful shepherds out there. I truly am. I tell people often that there are certainly challenges in what I do in evangelism, but I don't face the kind of challenges a pastor faces. Uh, I can come into a church, spend a couple of days, make everybody mad, and then I'm gone. And uh, But your pastors have to put up with you folks, and they love you, and they shepherd you, and And you have uh, some good, faithful men here in Dave, uh, Flip, Jeff, Bruce, and Leon. These are good, faithful brothers, faithful men who love the Lord, who love you. And uh, I want to encourage them. It will be all of our uh, faithful shepherds one day that will be at the front of the line. I have great love and appreciation for all of our faithful pastors out there. So um and thank you to this church, especially because, as Pastor Davis mentioned, uh, I am one of your missionaries, and uh, the church supports the work I do and it's a huge, huge help to us huge blessing and and helps me to do some of the trips, some of the trips that I take, especially overseas, uh, to poor countries and poor people that aren't able to take care of any of the expenses in traveling you know tickets and hotels and food and all that kind of stuff. And so the support that you give my ministry on a monthly basis is greatly, greatly appreciated and helps make that kind of work uh, possible. So um, thank you so very much. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to come together in worship. And uh, Lord, as we as we go now to your word, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would, would enable us to uh, understand your word, that the, the truth would be rightly divided, that it would find good purchase in our hearts, would find good fertile soil, and that it would bear fruit to the glory of Christ our King, that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ, and uh, we would live lives of obedience to his glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Daniel. going will be in the Old Testament this morning. Book of Daniel. So if you uh, find the book of Isaiah, then you'll find Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And then after that, you should find the book of Daniel. So kind of in the towards the end there of your old testament Isaiah Jeremiah Lamentations Ezekiel Daniel right before the books of Hosea and Joel Amos okay Daniel chapter 1 i'm going to we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8 that'll kind of be the lion's share of our of our time together but i want to read the entire passage or chapter rather this is a book i've in a book a sermon i've entitled the sovereignty of god the sovereignty of God. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, that's going to be an important phrase in a moment, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. May God bless the reading of his word. For context, the book of Daniel opens in the year 605 B.C. in the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had been divided by this time into the northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah. In Israel, the northern kingdom had fallen to the Babylonians over a 100 years previously to the opening of the book of Daniel in the year 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, had fallen to the Babylonians under the judgment of God. And so now in 605 B.C., the Babylonians, led by the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, began the siege of Judah. And this was the first of three stages of the siege of Judah. The first, uh, the other two coming in the year 597 B.C. and then in 586 B.C., And with the final stage then in 586 B.C., the Babylonian captivity of Judah was completed. So as the book of Daniel opens, 605 B.C., let's go back to our text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It helps us to understand something about the mindset of the ancient Near Easterner to war. In their way of thinking back then, when two opposing forces came into battle, whichever force won the battle is the side with the stronger gods. Does that make sense? So whoever wins the battle, that side, they serve the stronger gods, and the other side, they have weaker gods if their gods exist at all. So what does it say to the Hebrews when they look up and they see that their beloved city, Jerusalem, has been laid siege by the pagan Babylonians? For all the world, in their mindset, it looks like Yahweh has been defeated. It looks like the pagan Babylonian gods were stronger than their God. That's how they would have understood it. That's how it would have looked to them. But notice in verse 2, the author of Daniel here, Daniel is being very careful with the words and the names that he chooses. Verse 2, it says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is not something that caught God off guard. This is not something that took him by surprise. This is not something that God merely allowed to happen This is, in fact, something that God caused to happen. And the word here, Lord, that is used in verse 2 is the name Adonai. And Adonai means ruler. It means boss. It means one who is in control. And this ruler, this one who is in sovereign control, he is the one who, in fact, gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. God was not just up in heaven just passively letting this happen. No, this is the hand of God. God did this. And Daniel, using this name, Adonai, he is conveying to his readers in no uncertain terms that this is God's doing. God did this. And so even though it may seem like The pagan Babylonian kings have carried the day. No, they are merely pieces on God's chessboard that he is moving around. God caused this to happen. Adonai did this. It is his doing. When we look at our world today, it certainly seems like the wheels are coming off, does it not? There's war in Ukraine, Russia threatening nuclear weapons. Our society is decaying at a breathtaking speed. I mean, we look at the society in which we live today, and it just seems like the wheels have come off, doesn't it? Back in 2015 the decision by the United States Supreme Court, the Obergefell decision, the United States Supreme Court and all its infinite wisdom just created out of whole cloth the right for homosexuals to get married. And there was a lot of hand-wringing going on before that decision. People could kind of see the writing on the wall, so to speak, and they knew it was probably coming. And there was a lot of hand-wringing amongst evangelicals. Oh, if the, if we codify homosexual marriage, if that's You know, if if that becomes law, then that's going to bring the judgment of God. No. It's not going to bring the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. Do you understand that? It is God's judgment. And please know that there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. Okay? God defines marriage, not the United States Supreme Court. So they may call it marriage, but it's not marriage. But that was not going to bring the judgment of God. That is the judgment of God. Why are we living in a day and age today in which men can just decide that they are women? And women just decide that they are men. What in the blue-eyed world is going on? I mean, it's lunacy. It's lunacy. What are we seeing? It's the judgment of God. Dear friends, please understand, we're not headed towards God's judgment. We are in God's judgment. This is what judgment looks like. Romans chapter 1, God gave them over to depraved minds to do those things which are not fitting. This is the judgment of God. We're not headed there, we're there. Now, how far are we into it? I don't know. Is it going to get worse? Yep, sure is. But that's why we're, people, have, people have been given over to depraved minds to do those things which are not fitting. In other words, they have no ability to even think, to even reason at the most basic levels. And, and sins that we would have laughed at a few years ago are now being celebrated. It wasn't too long ago that homosexuality was considered a mental disorder by the American Psychological Association. Now it's being celebrated. Transgenderism, that was considered a mental illness. Now it's being celebrated and promoted. The President of the United States sits down with a man wearing a dress and makeup. And my goodness, men make for some ugly women. <laughs> this is being celebrated. Celebrated. It's being promoted. And it's being codified into law. And now you've got men that think they're women. Or want you to think they're women. Competing against women, women's sports. And just, I mean, it's lunacy, right? Even though it may not seem like it. Even though circumstances might seem to indicate otherwise. Dear friends, God is in control. For all the world, it would have looked like to the Hebrews that God had been defeated. But Adonai, God is in control. For all the world, when we look at our society, it looks like the wheels have come off. But dear friends, the wheels have not come off. God is in control, sitting on his throne, enacting his judgment against us. And if it were not for a healthy theology and understanding of the sovereignty of God, I tell you, I would despair looking at the society in which we're living in. I would absolutely despair. It seems like there is no hope, but I rest in the sovereignty of God. I rest in knowing that this is not something that God is merely allowing to happen. This is something that God himself is causing to happen. This is his judgment. This is his judgment. There's a campaign underway even now to normalize pedophilia. And please understand, the transgendered movement, you know what that's all about? The end game is to normalize pedophilia. That's where it's headed. Our culture has been given over to a depraved mind. This is what God's judgment looks like. But we should not despair. It is a great comfort to us knowing that God is in control. Not merely allowing these things to happen, this is his judgment on us. And one of the silver linings to this is that the darker our culture gets, the more brightly we will shine as Christians. And the easier it's going to become, To tell who the real Christians are. This is God's judgment. Romans 1, the wrath of God's abandonment. That is what we are seeing. Let's look at verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what's going on here? Nebuchadnezzar ordered his forces to lay siege to Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take some young men from judah and strip them take them away from their home away from their family away from everything that they had ever known and bring them hundreds of miles away and put these young men into his kingdom into his palace and to begin a process basically of brainwashing he wanted to use these men for his own personal service And these men were young, the youths, in whom was no defect, physically healthy, stout, strong, handsome, good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. These were intelligent young men, the cream of the crop. Young men that were probably between 15, 17, 18 years of age, the cream of the crop of Judah. And he took these young men, basically kidnapped them, stripped from them everything that they had ever known and began a process of brainwashing to give them a new system of education, teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, give them a new language, teach them to speak a new language. No longer are they going to speak Hebrew. No, now they're going to speak this foreign language, a period of brainwashing. Verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So Nebuchadnezzar figured that this period of brainwashing would last about three years. After three years, that should do it. Give them a new language, new system of education, stripped from them everything that they had ever known, period of brainwashing for three years. And then at the end of that, they would enter his personal service. He wanted to use their raw talents for his own personal advancement. Now look at verse 6. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So notice in verse 6 that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did not represent the totality of this group, right? It says, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We don't know exactly how large this group was. I've seen estimates anywhere from 50 to 600. We don't know. But let's just take the conservative end of that estimation, the conservative end. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah represent, well, they were only four young men out of a group of at least, at least 50, so less than 10%. So it was a much larger group than just Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I want to bring attention to their names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah mean something. And again, the author here is being very careful with the names that he records. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael's name means who is what God is. And Azariah's name means Yahweh is my help. So notice that their Hebrew names, their original Hebrew names, they all point to whom? God. They all say something about God, his character, and his nature. They all point to God. Their new names also mean something. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means protect the king's life. Hananiah's new name, Shadrach, means command of Aku, a pagan Babylonian god. Mishael's new name, uh, Meshach, means who is what Aku is. Now notice, his original name, Mishael, who is what God is. His new name, who is what Aku is. A direct challenge, a direct affront. A challenge to Adonai, a challenge to God, a direct slap in his face. Azariah's new name, Abednego, means servant of Nego, again, a pagan king. So their original names all point to God. They say something about him, his character, and his nature. Their new names point to pagan kings or pagan deities. A challenge. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Who is going to emerge supreme? The pagan Babylonian gods or Adonai? A showdown at high noon is on its way. In verse 8 But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials. That he might not defile himself. Now, that's a rather surprising verse when you think about it. Because up until this point, Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, had pretty much gone along with everything. You want to give us new names? All right, whatever floats your boat. Want to give us a new system of education? Want to teach us a new language? All right, knock yourself out. We'll go along with that too. But when it, all of a sudden, when it comes to the king's choice food or the wine which he drank, all of a sudden, Daniel and his friends say, nope, not going to do that. That's a line too far. New system of education, yeah, all right. New language, sure. New names, we'll even do that too. But when it comes to the one thing that if I had been in their shoes would be the lone bright spot in an otherwise very unappealing situation, the king's choice food or the wine which he drank, all of a sudden they say, nope, not going to do that. Had it been me, I would have been like, wow, well, you know, that… That prime rib over there, that, that's looking pretty good. You know, that's sirloin, uh, that's, that's, that's mm. uh, That would be the one bright spot in an otherwise very unappetizing situation. So why was it that all of a sudden when it comes to the king's choice, food, all of a sudden they say, no, not going to do that? I believe because Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, by God's sovereign grace, knew that they were about to be tested, and they wanted all of the glory for their upcoming victory to go only to the one to whom it belonged, God. They wanted to take no credit for themselves. They wanted the glory to go to no one else except God. They knew they were about to be tested, and they wanted all of the glory for their upcoming victory to go to Him and Him alone. Dear friends, in our service to the Lord and what we do in our service to Christ, we must make every effort to crucify our flesh and do what we do in such a way that it brings attention not to ourselves, but to Christ. There are a lot of people in churches, and they will busy themselves doing a lot of things, but whenever they serve, there's always a string attached and they do things in such a way that they get accolades and they get a pat on their back and they want to make sure you know everything that they're doing so they get a pat on their back. If that is your motivation for serving Christ, enjoy those accolades, enjoy that pat on the back because that will be your reward in full. It will not please Christ. Serve Him in such a way that you do so that you honor Him and you speak well of Him, not yourself. Not yourself. But also, I want to bring your attention. Remember I said that these are just four men of a much larger group, 50 at least. All of the other youths went along with the king's choice food and the wine which he drank. So why is it that these, just these four men didn't do it and all the rest of the young men from Judah did? Now think about this. Put yourself in their shoes. Everything that you have ever known has been stripped away from you. Mom and dad are gone. Your friends are gone. Everything that you've ever known is gone. Your worship is gone. And you're hundreds of miles away in a pagan kingdom being taught a new language, new system of education, new names. But the one thing that would be the bright spot, the king's choice food, the wine which he drank, then you say no. And you say no even though your other friends that had also been taken from Judah, they go along with it. Just these four. All of these young men had been taken from the same place. They believed the same thing. They were taught the same scriptures. Cookie cutter. Cookie cutter. But when it came to the time of temptation, when it came to a time, an opportunity for them to compromise, only four of the much larger group of 50 at least said, no, we're not going to do that. Nobody would have known. I mean, it's not like any of their other friends would have whipped out their iPhone and taken a picture of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know, cutting into that king's choice food, that sirloin. Mom and dad wouldn't have known. Nobody back in Judah would have known. It was only these four out of the much larger group whose head knowledge, even though they all had the same head knowledge, it was only four out of this much larger group whose head knowledge had actually penetrated their hearts. Just because you have been raised in church, just because you raised your hand one day at vacation Bible school, and you quote-unquote asked Jesus into your heart, and you profess the same thing that everybody else professes, does not mean that you truly know the Lord. What? brought out their true colors, a time of real temptation and a time of real persecution. That's what brought out their true colors. That's what brought their heartfelt convictions out to the forefront and made it visible for everyone to see. They didn't go along with their friends. They said, no, we're not going to do this. It says, Daniel and his friends made up their minds that they would not defile themselves with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Daniel and his friends, they made up their minds that they would not do that. They made up their minds beforehand that they would not defile themselves. My brother, my sister in Christ, make up your mind now that you will not defile yourself with the things of this world. Make up your mind now. Don't wait until you get to the place of temptation to decide how you're going to handle it. Don't wait until you get to that place of temptation to then decide whether or not you're going to defile yourself with the things of this world. Don't wait, young man, young woman, as you're dating, don't wait till you get to the place of where you're tempted. Where you're tempted with sexual things, don't wait until you get there to decide how you're going to handle it. Make up your mind now that you will not defile yourself with the king's choice food or with the wine which you drink. Make up your mind now that you will not bend to these temptations, because if you wait. You're going to fall every single time. Make up your mind now. It was how they handled temptation. It was how they handled persecution that really brought their heartfelt convictions to the forefront. We often think of our love for God, our love for Christ in emotional terms, unfortunately, in um, the way in which we most often think of love. It's like emotions, how I feel about someone. And I'm not against emotions at all. I'd be afraid of the man whose emotions are not impacted by the profundity of who Christ is. But dear friends, the only objective measure of our love for Christ is our obedience to Christ. If you want to know how much you love Christ… Don't base your love on your feelings and your emotions because your feelings and emotions, they ebb and wane, right? Up and down. And if you're of the fairer gender, they're more like this, you know. Sorry. But for all of us, our, our emotions, our feelings, they ebb and wane, ebb and wane. If you want to know how much you love Christ, don't look at your feelings Don't look at your emotion. Look at your obedience. Our obedience to Christ is the only objective measure of how much we love Him. John 14, verse 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and does what? Obeys them. He it is who loves me. He who has my commandments and obeys them and keeps them. He is the one who loves me. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we do what? Keep his commandments. That's how we know we love Christ. Whether or not we obey Christ. And it's a test. Times of temptation, times of persecution, these are Tests of our faith, of our love for Christ. John 3.36. Now listen to this, John 3.36. Jesus speaking. He who believes in the Son will have eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now notice the words that Jesus chooses here. He says, he who believes in the Son will have eternal life. Now, we often think the opposite of belief is what? Unbelief, right? I mean, that's what we think. But notice, that's not what Jesus says. He who believes in the Son will have eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Biblically speaking, the opposite of belief is not unbelief. The opposite of belief is disobedience. You see that? We often think of belief as simply intellectual assent to some basic gospel facts. You know, I believe in Jesus because I I believe He was real. I believe He died on the cross. I believe He was raised from the dead. I, I believe these things. Good for you. So do the demons. They believe those things too just as much as do we. Intellectually, they believe those things just as much, if not more so than you and I do. They believe, and yet they tremble. What's the difference? They do not obey. They have not obeyed. The opposite of belief is not just unbelief, not just intellectually. The opposite of belief is disobedience. So how much do you love Christ? How much do I love Christ? How much do we obey Him? That is the only objective measure of our love for Christ. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Notice in verse 9 that God grants Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah favor in the sight of the commander of the officials. He granted them favor. God honored their obedience. He honored their obedience to him. He honored the fact that they stood strong and did not succumb to the temptation of the king's choice food and the wine which he drank. God honored their obedience that they did not follow along with all their other knucklehead friends who did take the king's choice food and the wine which he drank. God honored their obedience and granted them favor in the sight of the commander of the officials. And he said, you would make me forfeit my head to the king. In other words, what is going on here? The commander of the officials serving at the good pleasure of King Nebuchadnezzar, he said to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, basically this. He said, guys, I like you. I'm not real sure why I like you, but I do. And I'd like to help you. I really would. But you've got to understand, if I help you, then that might make me, might make me forfeit my head to the king, literally. If I help you, I could be beheaded for helping you. And yet, for some reason, I'm going to do it. God granted them favor in the sight of the commander of the officials. Dear friends, God always honors our obedience to him. God always honors our obedience to him. Sometimes he honors us He honors our obedience in things that we can see, tangible things. Sometimes He honors our obedience with material blessings. Sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes our obedience to God will not result in physical blessings. Actually, sometimes and oftentimes, our obedience to God will result in what? It's going to result in suffering, it's going to result in persecution. Sometimes that is the reward, if you will, for our obedience to God. Well, how is that a reward? In this way, because obedience to God is always in and of itself its own reward. I want to say that again. Obedience to God is in and of itself its own reward whether or not it results in us having some kind of tangible physical blessings. We will at least have the blessing of knowing, of having a clear conscience before God. And we will have the reward knowing that God is pleased with us. Why? Because we have obeyed Him. And we've honored Him with our obedience. It's wonderful when God blesses us with material things. That's wonderful. But what about when God blesses us, blesses our rewards with suffering? It's not so easy, is it? What about when God blesses our obedience to Him with persecution? It's not so easy. But we know that suffering for the cause of Christ is also a blessing. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, For to you it has been granted Not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for His sake. It's been granted for us to suffer for Christ? Yes, it's been granted. It is a privilege for us to suffer for the sake of Christ. It is a reward. It's an honor to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, we don't live in Iran. We don't live in North Korea, at least not yet. We don't suffer the kind of persecution that many of our other brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world do. But you can see it coming, can't you? You can see it coming. I can see it coming. What are you going to do, my fellow believer, when when you show up to work one morning and your co-worker that yesterday you knew as Dan shows up the next morning in a dress and lipstick and he wants you to call him Danielle and he wants you to use refer to him as by his preferred pronouns she, her what are you going to do? What are you going to do when your employer says if you don't refer to Danielle as a she, uh, you're going to lose your job. What you going to do? That's real. That's happening right now. If you truly love Christ, you'll obey Christ, not your employer. And you have to say to Danielle, you have to say, look, man, I can't affirm that sinful delusion. You can't dishonor Christ by affirming someone in their sinful delusion. Is it a test? You better believe that kind of stuff is a test. It's a test of how much we truly love Christ. And at the time, if you're going to if you know that you're in danger of possibly losing a promotion or getting a demotion or maybe even losing your job, because you're going to stand on truth, at the time that's not going to feel real good. Your feelings and your emotions are probably going to be down here. But obey Christ. Demonstrate your love for Christ by standing on truth and honoring Him. And honoring Christ is always, in and of itself, its own reward. These are tests of our faith their test of our theology, their test of our belief in God's sovereignty. Know that God is in control. Even though it may not seem like it, even though circumstances may seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control. And He has orchestrated even this as a test of your faith and my faith. Verse 11 But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of our other knucklehead friends who were cowards and they succumbed to the temptation. The appearance of our other youths, of the other friends who who are eating the king's choice food and Deal with your servants according to what you see. So here comes the showdown. Now, some people have made this into a... um, Verse 12, they've made it into a diet plan. Please, give us, give us just vegetables to eat and water to drink, and, and then test us for 10 days. Just give us vegetables to eat, water to drink. And some people and I won't name his name, but his initials are Rick Warren, have have made this into a diet plan, the Daniel diet. You know, this is how God wants us to eat. Eat nothing but vegetables, drink nothing but water. That's not the point of the passage. In fact, that's the opposite meaning of what this actually means. Daniel and his friends did not prosper because of the food. They prospered in spite of the food. That's the point. They prospered in spite of being given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and that's a great relief to me because I, I like my meat. <laughs> then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the other youths who are eating the king's choice food, and then deal with us according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better And they were fatter than all of the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink, and he kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God gave them wisdom and knowledge that was far beyond the wisdom and knowledge that the other youths had. And as for these four youths, excuse me, verse 18, that at the, then at the end of the ten days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Here comes the showdown. The king talked with them and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and all the conjurers who were in all of his realm. Ten times better. And I think that's a figure of speech. They were just... Many, 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 exponentially more wise, exponentially more intelligent than all of the magicians, all of the pagan magicians and conjurers, which were all in Israel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were light years ahead of all the others. God blessed them. God honored their obedience. And I want to read this verse in the way in which the original recipients would have read it and understood it. In verse 19, by looking at these names, the king talked with them and out of them all, not one was found like God is my judge. Out of them all, not one was found like Yahweh is gracious. Out of them all, not one was found like who is what God is. Out of them all, not one was found like Yahweh is my help. Dear friends, this world has an awful lot that it wants to offer you and an awful lot with which to tempt you. But out of them all, not one will you find like Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha and Omega, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Spotless Lamb of God who laid down His life for us. Out of them all, not one will you find like Christ. This world has nothing to offer you. This world has nothing that will satisfy the longing of your sin stricken soul. Out of them all, not one will you find like Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? Do you love him? Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that you are a sinner? That you have broken God's laws? And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God? But because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And if we die in our sin, we will very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell, where the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. The full undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out forever and ever, day and night. And that torment will never end. That's the bad news. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And there's no amount of good works that can overcome the debt that your sin has incurred to God. You cannot work your way into heaven. Our works, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags before our thrice-holy God. But there is good news, and the good news of the gospel is this, is that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. one person, two natures, the God man lived a perfect life before God he lived a life to the perfect pleasure and satisfaction of God and Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross his life was not taken he gave it and on the cross this perfect person offered his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God died on the cross three days later bodily raised from the dead proving himself to be who he said he was god in human flesh and the only way to be saved is to repent of sin turn from sin and place your trust in the risen lord jesus christ trust him in him alone for your salvation there is salvation in no one else but you will find salvation in christ If you will come to Christ in a godly sorrow over your sin, which you grieve over your sin because you understand that your sin grieves God, if you will come to Him empty-handed and ask Him to save you, He will. Jesus says, the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. He will save you. You'll pass from death to life. He'll make you a new creature. He'll give you a new heart, new desires, new affections. If you're not certain in where you are in your relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, if you are not certain in where you are in your relationship with Adonai, the ruler of the universe, that I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Don't look at your feelings. Don't look at your emotions. Examine yourself. Do I obey Christ? And if there's a habitual pattern in your life of not obeying Christ, then you need to do some serious self-examination. Get real honest before God. But if you come to Him, trusting Him and Him alone, He will save you. He will save you. In Jesus, He Himself will be our reward. He is our reward. Look at verse 21. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Notice who outlasted whom. God is my judge, outlasted Nebuchadnezzar. God is in control, dear ones. The wheels aren't coming off. God's in control. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what comfort we take from reading Your Word, from understanding Your Word. What comfort we take in knowing that You are sovereign. In knowing that there is nothing that has that is outside of your sovereign control. Lord, as we are so dismayed by what we see around us, Lord, we take great comfort knowing that this is your doing. This is your doing. And the decay of our society merely gives us an opportunity to be bolder and brighter and more clear witnesses for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we do so. May we live lives of obedience to Christ our King, and in so honor Him in all that we do, all that we say, and how we carry ourselves. These things we would ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.